Chapter 11 of Little Stories of Married Life Little Stories of Married Life by Mary Stuart Cutting Wings, a Study It was a lovely morning in the early summer that Millie Clark's lover brought her the engagement ring with which she was also to be wedded some sweet day. It was a plain hoop of gold with the word Mizpah graven upon its inner side, not because there was any thought of parting between them then, but simply in accordance with the somewhat sentimental fashion of the day. Millie had been given her choice between the ring and a little padlocked bracelet of which Norton was to keep the key, after it had been safely fastened on her white wrist, and this, indeed, appealed to all the instincts of a barbaric womanhood in its suggestion of a lover's mastery. But the ring was a holier symbol, and the pledge of love eternal. The bees were buzzing around the syringa bushes, in the corner of the old-fashioned garden where the lover stood looking out upon the road through the white fence which was built upon a stone wall and covered with climbing roses the road shining in the sunlight sloped down to a bridge half hidden by chestnut trees and beyond was a glimpse of hills against the blue sky of june the air the countryside the hum of unseen insects contained that suggestion of joy unspeakable that comes only at this heavenly time of the year. But there were only the two by the garden wall to feel it in its perfection this morning. As far as the eye could see, there was no other human being anywhere. At eleven o'clock in a New England village, after the marketing is seen to, and mail time over, all self-respecting persons are at home, behind the bowed green blinds of the white houses by the roadside, or at work farther off in the fields. For Milly and Norton to be out in the garden now was to be quite alone, and when he put his arm around her and drew her down beside him on the stone wall among the roses, she only smiled confidently up into his face and flushed sweetly as he kissed her. "'I can't seem to get used to it,' she said. "'Get used to what, dear?' "'You're loving me?' "'I don't want you to get used to it,' he cried fervently. "'I'm sure I never will.' why when we're quite old people it will be just the same as it is now love can never grow old not ours anyway can it milly she gave him a smile for answer and he gazed down at her admiringly taking note anew of the deep blue of her eyes the little veins on her forehead where the soft brown hair was drawn smoothly back from it and the pure curve of her throat and chin a face of the highest new england type fine and beautiful. He himself was the product of a different civilization, and cast in a rougher mold. It was the very difference that had drawn them close together, his rude strength giving sweet promise of protection to her delicate fineness. She sat silently looking at him, her soul steeped in a delicious dream. Yes, we will be like this always, she said at last with almost religious solemnity. Always, he assented only growing better and better all the time, Norton. I feel as if I could never be good enough to show how thankful I am that you love me. Do you think I ever can? Hush, he said, frowning. You must not talk in that way. I'm only a stupid commonplace fellow at best, not half good enough for you. You'll have to make me better. Oh, Norton, she protested. Ah, never mind now, dear. You haven't put on my ring yet. Millie, Remember, it is not to come off until I have to put it on the next time. Do you know when that will be? When we are married, when you are mine, really and forever. 
may that day soon come give me your hand now dear and let me wring your finger with the round hoop of gold as you were reading to me last night there is someone coming said milly nervously she stood up as the shadow of a parasol touched the roses and met the gaze of the episcopal clergyman's wife as she stopped to rest panting a little by the garden wall she was a thin woman in a black and white print gown and with a black lace bonnet trimmed with bunches of artificial violets surmounting her sallow face oh it's you is it milly she asked with a kindly inflection of her rather sharp voice and mr edwards too of course well good morning to you both isn't it a perfect day a little hot in the sun though it always tires me to walk up this hill i have to stop a moment here to get my breath i suppose you're not going to the funeral either of you no it's not a bit necessary but i fancied you might like to see the service performed as it should be for once i did not know anyone had died said milly my dear it is only a little boy from the poorhouse his relatives such as he had are not able to bury him and mr preston did want to show the parish what a properly conducted funeral was like you know what a frightfully bigoted place this is we had to give up candles altogether mr edwards it fairly makes me shiver at times the ignorance i wonder i do wonder they don't knock the cross off the spire some day because it's a symbol i wonder they even have a church instead of a circus tent oh mrs preston remonstrated milly she glanced sideways nervously at norton who was picking a rose to pieces with an imperturbable expression you will hear the choir boys at any rate as they march in procession around the grave pursued mrs preston raising her parasol again i don't suppose there will be a soul there but ourselves well i put on my best bonnet anyway out of respect i know you will both be glad when i'm gone although you're too polite to say so she relaxed into a quizzical smile as she regarded them well good-bye thank heaven she's gone at last said norton with boyish petulance as they watched her disappear behind the evergreens that bordered the churchyard what possessed her to give us so much of her society just now the very wrong moment wasn't it dear she has left me with only a quarter of an hour before the noon train to town and i'll not be back until monday you know this time to think that i shall be working for you now milly for a sweet girl in a blue dress with a dimple in one cheek and long brown lashes that droop lower and lower as i oh you darling they both laughed in joyously blissful content shall i put the ring on now he asked after a few moments stand up beside me then there that is right this is our betrothal milly say the words dear since you would have them while i slip on the ring let us say them together oh norton it is to be forever forever give me your dear hand now with me the lord the lord her clear voice mingled with his deep one the lord watch between thee and me when we are parted but we shall never be when we are parted the one from the other the ring shone on her finger their lips met in a long kiss he caught her to him and laid her head upon his breast and her arms around his neck and they stood thus silently while the seconds passed what power was in those words of might to bring a sudden hush upon both hearts and to change the sunshine into the awesome beautiful light of another world something deeper nobler purer than they stirred those two souls and made them sacredly divinely one each felt intensely what neither could have expressed 
never while life lasted could the witness of that moment be forgotten long after her lover had left her milly sat in the garden her face half hidden in the roses with the bees still booming around the syringas and the sky growing bluer and bluer in the heat of noon she heard the choir boys singing now in the little churchyard nearby as they marched around the open grave brief life is here our portion brief sorrow short-lived care the life that knows no ending the tearless life is there o oh, happy retribution short toil eternal rest for mortals and for sinners a mansion with the blessed the words brought her no realization of the shortness of human life of inevitable sorrow of impending care and no remembrance of the dead pauper child or of the open grave they only served to add to the fullness of her bliss the thought that after all this measureless happiness of earth there was still the joy of heaven beyond it was only a few weeks after their betrothal that norton sailed for australia on that long journey from which he did not return for three years the trip was to make his fortune and fortune meant a home and milly for his own so neither rebelled and indeed it was only intended at first that he should stay away a year in the first ardor of romance parting seemed but a little thing two hearts like theirs could beat as one with a continent between them and love shows sweetly in different lights the purple shadows of impending separation gave it a deeper richer glow she took a little journey in from the country to see him off and they talked of this beforehand as of something quite festive although there proved to be a bewildering hurry and bustle about it that mixed everything up in a whirl mrs preston went with her and there was a disjointed attempt at conversation on the deck of the steamer with some of norton's friends who had also come to see him off and the examination of them amid laughter and jokes of norton's tiny stateroom and the few moments there when lingering behind the two kissed each other good-bye and the veil of pretense ruthlessly torn aside milly felt a sudden terrible spasm of heartbreak i cannot let you go i cannot she sobbed and her lover had to loosen her arms from around his neck and dry her eyes with his handkerchief whispering soothing words and then she must be led out into the glaring sunlight and turn her face away from the group of friends while her hand still lay in norton's and then the bell rang the signal for parting and then do we not know it all the last look from the pier at the beloved face and then the slow watching watching until the vessel is out of sight and the vision is filled with green overlapping waves and afterwards the walk back again along the wharf among bales and vans of plunging horses out into the world of dusty streets and houses and the midsummer sights and smells and the busy empty life that is left milly was grateful to mrs preston for not talking she blindly let herself be piloted anywhere to find that she was at last ensconced in a hurrying train proceeding homeward through a green landscape with freshly cooler air blowing in through the open window to soothe her aching head when they reached the village in the dusk it was mrs preston who walked home with her up the long hill and oh the going home when the one we love most has just left it and answered all the questions that were showered upon both and afterward went upstairs to milly's room and saw that the girl put on a loose gown to rest in and made her drink the cup of tea she had brought up she gave milly a kiss like a peck thought milly suddenly alive to the remembrance of those other kisses and after the elder woman had left 
she slipped from the bed where she had even submitted to have her feet covered and went over to the window and knelt down by it with her head on the sill almost in the branches of the maple tree through which she could see the moon rising in golden quiet he was looking at the same moon now and the lord was watching between them she pressed the ring to her lips she pressed it to her bosom the ring that made her his joy flooded back upon her with the thought she had forgotten that she could speak to him still that she could write oh quick quick lose not a moment it was treachery to have a thought in her soul and he not know it down on her knees in the moonlight she wrote and wrote and wrote all that she never could have said her very heart she woke to joy the next morning still in the consciousness of new-found power and with a high ideal of the life before her she was to grow and grow that she might be worthy of him that she might help him grow to be worthy of the highest every minute of the day she could live for him just as in every minute of the day he was living for her she went about her daily tasks with renewed energy because he was thinking of her while she performed them even during little lady stevens's tedious music lesson she smiled thinking how she would write him that the child's halting five-finger exercise counted itself out to her in the words how i love you how i love you how i love you how i love you dear she had a little note from him by the pilot boat written a few hours after they had parted how little it seemed after all she had thought and felt in this twenty-four hours but it made the color rise in her soft cheeks and she cried over it and wore it next her bosom by day and laid it under her pillow by night for many long weeks it was the only message from him that she had to feed on the mail does not come quickly from australia she had sent off pages and pages to him in the two or three months before his first letter came and it was much longer before she had an answer to hers how she studied those letters simple almost boyish effusions full of wondering pride in those that she wrote to him why you are the real poetess milly i don't see how you manage to think of such things i wish i had been thinking of you at the time you speak of but i'm afraid that must have been when i was staying at jackson's and he and blessington and i played cards every evening awfully poor luck i had too i suppose i must have been thinking of you after all and that's what made me play so badly don't you believe it no i don't do much reading out here you'll have to do the reading for both of us and you can tell it all to me when i get home when i get home oh milly i can't write about it as you do but i'm working for my sweet sweet girl with all the strength i've got the girl bloomed as she never had before with this quickening of her soul the days were so full of duties her music scholars the household matters in which she helped her widowed aunt the two young cousins to be looked after her reading and when she could attend them the weekday afternoon prayers at the little church where she sometimes with the sexton represented all mr preston's congregation milly's people were of the congregational faith but norton and she had gone to st john's together people found fault with mr preston a rather dull man with impassive wooden features because he had no variety of expression he read service and sermon in a low monotonous voice which however grew to have a soothing charm for milly why need anyone express anything it was all in herself other people's expression only jarred 
those few moments in the half-light of the empty church gave a sense of peace that was an actual physical rest undisturbed by the personality of others she was even guilty of slipping from the church afterwards to avoid mr preston's perfunctory handshake then after each quickly passing day came the long evening when in her little white room she wrote to him wrote to norton her own own lover ah oh, what fire can there be in the veins of a little puritan girl so the swift winter passed and the spring came around again and he had not returned then came hours when the sense of separation began to press more heavily upon her when the soft breeze wearied her and the common roadside flowers brought tears to her eyes especially when the australian mail was long delayed it was in a mood of this kind that she went one day to see mrs preston whose sharp features relaxed at the sight of her mrs preston was sitting in the front parlor by the window with her sleeves rolled up a little and a gingham apron tied around her waist beating up eggs in a large bowl come in she called cheerfully to milly i just saw mrs furness go past she looked as if she thought i was committing one of the seven deadly sins when she discovered that i was beating my eggs in here the aborigines consider a parlor a sacred thing you know it's the pleasantest place in the whole house this morning and this lilac bush is budding it's spring again for certain yes said milly listlessly i'm making custard for dessert tomorrow. the bishop's coming he always says mrs preston it's such a relief to reach your house and get sponge cake and syllabub instead of relays of pie you know the poor dear man has dyspepsia terribly and you new england people have no mercy on him i'm glad he's coming tomorrow. it gives me something more to do one must work in the spring or die if this weather keeps on i'll get at the garret what is the matter with you this morning milly i'm tired said milly with a quiver of her lip work i have worked i'm busy all the time but it doesn't do any good it's hard to have norton away for so long i can't help feeling she stopped a moment and looked very hard out of the window i'm afraid i'm beginning to get melancholy about it she was trying to smile but a bright tear fell in her lap i don't think you're very unhappy said mrs preston she put the bowl of eggs down on the table and folded her thin arms it's the luxury of grief that you're enjoying part of the romance be melancholy as you call it while you can you are always so cheerful said milly rather resentfully i my dear i don't dare to be anything else i have to be cheerful or she turned a darkening face to the budding lilacs i don't dare think long enough to be depressed to even remember there's an awful abyss down which i slip when i get melancholy it's the bottomless pit i know it's there all the time but i have to pretend to myself that i'm not near it or i get dragged under i avoid it like the plague a momentary spasm contracted her face she added in a lower tone did you know that i had four children once they died within a year oh you poor thing cried milly she reached forward and tried to take one of the fast-locked hands of the woman before her. Oh, how terrible! How terrible! How did you live? I didn't. All the best part of me went, too. This thing you see here... She stopped, and the same shiver as before went over her. But you have your husband, said Milly, seeking about for comfort. 
a vision of mr preston stiff dull formal with his wooden features fronted her confusingly yes that's the worst of it if i only had not william oh mrs preston cried milly i suppose it is surprising after having bored each other for so many years we really ought to be very much attached don't you think perhaps even you can see how much comfort i get from william if i were an article of the rubric instead of a woman but of course that is different but you must have loved him when you were married cried milly shocked did i dear i loved something that went by his name it wasn't william there don't let us talk of it i find no fault he should have been a celibate priest i agree with him there he has never really cared for me or for the children the spasm passed over her face again oh if i did not have him if i were not tied to this narrow round which chokes every higher instinct of me if i could go off somewhere by myself to california or egypt or cathay travel 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 keep going on and on seeing something new every hour breathing freer every day getting out into the great life of the world she clenched her hands i have given my life my aspirations the whole strength of my being to william and now i have nothing left but william you have four children in heaven said milly softly the elder woman broke down into a fit of weeping that seemed to rend her milly sat by appalled at this glimpse of the inner life of two respectable married people later as she was going home she met mr preston his tall thin figure in its clerical garb silhouetted against the bright green of the spring foliage his pale eyes gazed solemnly at her as he drew near across the fields she felt that he might be murmuring credos or even aves quite oblivious of her presence but he reached the bars in time to let them down for her and offer her the handshake from which she had been wont to flee and stood a moment as if he would have spoken while she gazed at him furtively could any woman put her arms around that stiff neck or kiss those thin set lips oh poor mrs preston but he was really speaking i saw you in the distance and i stopped to pick these for you he said in his slow even tone it was a little bunch of violets that he held out to her oh mr preston thank you said milly in wonder it is a pleasure to me that you attend our services if he paused if my daughter had lived she would have been your age like you in her springtime he gazed past her solemnly and then taking off his hat to her went on his way leaving milly overpowered with bewilderment what did it all mean who was right and who was wrong how did people drift apart after they were married a new idea of the complexity of life came to her the strange way in which human beings acted on each other drawn as by magnets with the differing forces marriage to her had always presented a picture of growth and happiness growth and goodness a path upward together for lover and beloved she tried now and for the first time vainly to recall if any in her limited circle of acquaintance seemed to fulfill these conditions sordidness narrowness selfishness a jealous love of one's children these stood revealed instead of the casual eye she wrote a long page in her journal letter that night his answer came back at last it said don't bother your head dear about these things you will always be the dearest girl in the world to me and the purest and the best and as for me i never forget that i'm working for you and if that won't keep me straight nothing will 
What do you care about these old fossils of Preston's, anyhow? You are you, and I am I, and that's all I care for, sweetheart. The wealth of meaning with which Milly freighted these honest lines it would take pages to chronicle. Perhaps it was partly on account of some words of Mrs. Preston's which haunted her. I loved something that went by his name. It wasn't William. The clergyman's family remained in her mind an unsolved problem. It was nearly a month before she went to the rectory again, where she found Mrs. Preston up to her ears, as she expressed it, endeavoring to settle the affairs of a poor family who were preparing for immigration to the West. Her snapping black eyes and vivacious mien showed thorough enjoyment of the task, to say nothing of her dominant volubility. Mr. Preston, who came in from the garden bearing the first strawberry solemnly on a gilt plate for his wife's acceptance, was unheeded until Milly directed attention to him. He had been waiting, he explained gravely, some days for this particular strawberry to ripen. Mrs. Preston said, oh yes, and thereupon ate the fruit absent-mindedly as she went on talking, with apparently no more appreciation of flavor than if it had been gouda perca and quite ignoring the giver. Milly could not help smiling, but she left the house more bewildered than ever. Mrs. Preston must like her life more than she thought she did, and it was impossible not to feel a little tinge of sympathy for Mr. Preston. Did people, after all, know what they really liked, or indeed what they really were? The moods of different days, of different hours, what kind of a whole did they form? Her own life seemed to be all questioned in these days, to which nobody gave the answer. Thus the second year stole on, and Norton's homecoming appeared to grow no nearer. The photograph which he sent her startled by its unlikeness to her thought of him, those were the eyes that were to look into hers again some day, those the lips that were to kiss hers. After a while, by much poring over it, the picture looked to her any way she pleased. Absence makes the heart grow fonder, possibly, and possibly not, always fonder of the unseen beloved, but of one's own personality projected into the suitable position. But if any moment of serious doubt came, the remembrance of the betrothal in the garden quenched it. There was always that to fall back upon. Milly lived that over again and again and again, never without the solemn rush of feeling that had accompanied the pledge with God for their witness. Never to be forgotten, never to be denied. The latter words Norton had himself used in a letter to her once, a letter from which she never parted. With love came at last the teachings of death to Milly, and she went down into the shadows and cried out affrighted. All props were torn away from her, and she stood alone trembling, reaching out on the right hand and on the left. I had not thought it meant this, she wrote piteously. I believe in God and in heaven. Why, then, should this desolation touch me? Words, words that I have said all my life and believed in, mean nothing to me. I believe in them now, but they mean nothing. I can't make anything real but death, not even your love. Oh, help me. Tell me that I shall not die alone, that you will go with me. Tell me that you are not afraid. Help me, Norton. You must know something to make it all better. She had gained some peace before his reply reached her, a sense of the eternal fatherhood that pervaded the unseen world as well as the one she walked and lived and loved in now, a protection that was a rest and brought light into the sunshine once more. But he wrote, Milly, if you love me, don't send me any more letters like the last. 
To think of such things would drive me mad. I can't think of death. It's as much as I can do to work for a living and try and be worthy of you, and I'll have to leave the rest to the good Lord, I expect. I'll be coming home some day before you know it. Drop me a line to tell me how you'd feel if you saw me walking in just after you get this. If there was a graver look in Milly's eyes than had been, there was also a sweeter depth. The lines around her mouth were very gentle. She did not talk much. It was the third summer of the separation. She no longer tried to solve the problem of the Prestons, but accepted the fact that she stood a little nearer to each of them than anyone else did. People said she was a good listener, but although she seemed to give a quiet attention to them, it was the voice across the sea that she was always listening for. The letters came now so full of matters and people that she knew nothing of, the whole burden of them for her lay in the few loving sentences that began and ended the pages. Had she ever had a lover? It was so long ago, and for so short a time, yet at last she had word that he was coming home. It was after this news had reached her, and nearly three years from the day of the revealing of love in the garden, that the second revelation was given her. This time it was of immortality. She was kneeling in the church during the afternoon service. The church was almost empty. She had had a singularly calm spirit all day, and as she knelt in the dim aisle, her gaze directed upward to the stained-glass window in one of the arches of the ceiling, she was not praying. She was only peaceful. The window was partly open, so that a glimpse of pale blue sky slanted through it with the afternoon sunshine. And as she gazed, not consciously, her spirit went from her and mingled with that sunlight becoming one with it, and in a rapture of buoyancy, of radiance, of exultant immortality, it had in it no acknowledged perception of God, no conviction of sin, no so-called experience. It was simply life eternal, utterly free from the body, the spirit divested of the hampering bonds of the flesh. The wonder of it, the joy of it, yet the wonderful and joyful familiarity with it, as of something known always, that had been only forgotten for a little while and was now remembered, and beyond and through all something indescribable. One cannot translate the meaning of life into words that belong to mortality. Milly bowed her head, and the light closed over her, and her spirit came back to her body once more. She neither wept nor trembled. Like Mary of old, she marveled and was silent. She thought she could write it all to Norton, but she could not. She thought to tell him when he came, but she did not. She never had the revelation again, but like the first, it could never be forgotten nor denied. They were married at St. John's a couple of months after his return. Mr. Preston united them in the bonds of holy matrimony with his still unvarying wooden gravity, through which, however, Millie was able to discern some faint, limited attempt at warmth, and Mrs. Preston folded her in her arms afterwards with a scoffing fondness that rather troubled the bride when she thought of it. She did not want to think now of spoiled lives. Something in Mrs. Preston's manner implied. Could it be pity? It had been delightful after three years of maiden dreaming and shadowy aspiration to be carried forcibly out of them into a clear, cheerful, masculine territory where things seemed to be exactly what they were. The charm of having a lover who was almost a stranger, yet whom it was taken for granted must be both dear and familiar, was nearly too bewildering. She laughed at absurd jokes. 
was betrayed into demonstrative foolishness and could scarcely believe in her own metamorphosis she was in a state of suppressed excitement which must be happiness i hardly knew you when i saw you coming in the gate she confessed one day soon after his arrival think of it i ran and hid you did not hide long he answered gravely taking a hairpin from her smooth locks let your hair down i want to see if it has grown norton how silly are you always like this certainly but i want to tell you of so many things that i could not write when you were away oh norton the years have been short yet they were so very very long too there's so much i have to confess to you how shall i ever begin don't try he answered laconically leave all that time out milly i hate it we'll begin fresh now he drew a long breath it was a hard coarse life out there you couldn't even understand it sweetheart but one thing i can tell he turned around and faced her with steadfast gaze i can look you straight in the eyes dear and not be ashamed why of course said milly and so the new life began a few months after the wedding they went to live in a narrow street in the great city away from all the dear lovely hills and fields and sky that had hitherto made milly's world she was surprised to find that the dreary outlook on brick and stone affected her like a physical blow and that she missed familiar voices strangely she had often and often thought that she would be willing to live with norton in a desert and forego all other companionship than his which necessarily must be satisfying was it gradually very gradually but surely a sinking of the heart a gnawing homesickness began to take possession of her the homesickness of one transplanted in body and mind to an alien soil a feeling fiercely combated fiercely denied yet conquering insidiously to many women to most women perhaps there is no medium between worshipping and delicately despising the man they love they must either look up or down anything but a level view with clear eyes meeting and the honest admission dear friend my insufficiency balance thine what thou art not to me that other thing i am not to thee but it is torture not to be able to look up the sense of superiority is only a sting Milly took life with intense earnestness. She could not understand Norton's light, jocular way of looking at things. He cared for nothing improving. He simply wanted recreation. He loved her, yes, as much, she thought, sadly, as he could have loved any woman. But not, oh, not as she loved. She missed so much, so much. Each day brought a subtle shock of disappointment with it, a miserable feeling of loss. What could she do about it? She tried vainly to adjust her vision to the man's point of view. Her husband seemed to her shallow, coarse, with no standard of honor. It must be her mission to elevate him. The more unsatisfied her mind became, the more her heart endeavored to make up for it. You are not what I dreamed of, but kiss me, kiss me more passionately that I may forget it, was a continued inner crying but kisses do not grow more passionate under the insistent claim she prayed for him with a hysterical uplifting of the spirit followed by fathomless exhaustion and depression he was always very very kind to her when she wept and very glad to get away she relapsed into an obedient endurance a patient and uncomplaining disapproval 
There seemed to be nothing in him of the man she had married except a certain sweet boyishness that had always been one of his charms, and which showed at times through everything in a bright yet delicate kindness which other people liked, although to her it had no depth. Sometimes she felt a little envious of his ease with others. "'How you talked to Mrs. Catherwood tonight,' she said one evening after the guests had gone. "'You quite monopolized her. I wonder what she thought of you.' "'Oh, that was all right,' he answered somewhat absently. Then he looked up with a smile. "'What do you think?' I found that she came from the town I used to live in. I knew her sister well. We went back over old times. You never talked to me about them. You? Oh, that's different. You wouldn't be interested, dear. He shook his head with a kind of rueful amusement. I always feel when I tell you of such things that you're wondering how I could enjoy them. It came sort of easy to talk to Mrs. Catherwood. She seemed to understand. Some people do make you feel that way, you know. He looked up a little sadly, and then came over to his wife and kissed her. You're a saint, Millie, and saints are not expected to take stock in vain jestings. You have to be good for both of us, you know. Millie flushed angrily. I wish you wouldn't say such things. You take such a low view, and I wanted you to see something of Professor Stearns tonight. He is such a fine man, so thoroughly high-minded, so firm in principle. He never gives way an inch in what he thinks is right. How people dislike him for it. It's really splendid. Norton looked humorous, but discreetly held his peace. I tell you, Jordan, he said one day to a friend, half sadly, half jestingly, my wife wants me to be a good woman, to like all the things she likes, and to do all the things she does. I know she mourns over me every day of her life. I suppose it's a hopeless job for both of us. I never was anything but a commonplace sort of fellow, not near good enough for her. That is the proper frame of mind, old fellow, said his friend, and they went on riding together in silence. To what end had the higher life been Millie's? In five years she and Norton had been drifting slowly, but surely ever further apart. Had companionship with her elevated him? Impossible not to see that he had deteriorated, that the lax hold on former ideals had lapsed entirely. Can any human soul thrive in an atmosphere of doubt? It was when this knowledge of further separation lay heaviest upon her that word came to Milly one morning in the bright sunlight that Norton had been arrested for embezzlement and was in jail. Her heart stood still. This, then, was what she had been foreboding all along. The instantaneous conviction of his guilt was the cruel blow. Oh, the awful, awful wrench of the heart when disgrace lays its hand on one we love. Death seems an honest, joyful thing in comparison. Yet she could think of a thousand extenuations for him. She found herself yearning over him as she might have done over the children that had never been hers. She prayed all the way to jail. How often she had read of similar journeys. The prisoner was always sitting on the side of his bed in the cell. Norton was sitting on the side of his bed. His face was turned away as she came in. She sat down beside him and took his hand. Norton, she said, and yet again, Norton, and he turned and looked at her. I knew you would come, he said, and I knew you would think I had done it. Oh, Norton, Norton, say only that you did not, and I will believe you. You will believe, if I tell you, that I am not a thief? What would a thief's word be good for, Milly? 
Do I have to tell such a thing to my own wife? Why, even that poor Irish woman you can hear crying in the next cell believes in her husband. You could have heard her talking before you came. And he's a brute. Millie gasped painfully, the tears running down her cheeks. You know, you always thought some things honest that I did not. Some transactions. We have often talked. How could I tell? You had your ideas and I had mine, he interrupted. It's mighty hard to conduct business on abstract principles, perhaps. I don't deny it. My ways weren't always what they ought to have been. But this is stealing. It somehow kills me to think that you— He stopped short of a gesture and hid his face in his hands. Millie longed to put her arms around him, to kiss the hands that hid him from her, to do anything to show her love and grief and her faith in him, but she did not dare. This was her husband, but she did not dare. He spoke quite calmly after a few minutes. You'd better go back to the house now. My arrest was all a stupid blunder. I sent for Catherwood at once, and he saw Forrest. They are on the right track, and I will be set free as soon as possible. Tomorrow, probably. The charge is to be withdrawn. And don't feel so badly, dear. I suppose it's all my fault that you've never believed in me since we were married. For you never have, Millie. He stooped and kissed her goodbye, saying gently, You must go now, dear. Three days after that he came home very ill. All that Millie had been longing to say to him, all that she had been longing to hear, must wait until the morrow, until the next week, until the next month. And then, and then, could it be? Until the next life. He was so very ill from the beginning that there was nothing else to be considered. For the first time her own wishes and feelings were as naught. In the delirium he did not even know her, but there came a time before the end when she was startled as she sat by him in the twilight, holding his wasted hand to see his conscious eyes fixed upon her through the shadows. Her own responded with a depth of piteous eager love in them, and she bent closer to him. Still the eyes gazed at her. What, oh, what were they saying? Darling, she whispered. His lips did not move but the fingers of the hand which lay in hers felt feebly for something, touched the golden circle on her finger, and held it as if contented at last. And still the eyes. It was again the moment of their betrothal, and God was with them as in the garden. Late in the moonlight, the tender moonlight of June, Milly sat alone by a grave. The soft night wind touched her face. The smell of countless budding flowers was around her. It was again the beautiful youth of the year, the time of love, and for her youth and love were done. Such a little while ago it seemed since she had been looking forward to it, and now it was done. Oh, what did it all mean, the love, the yearning, the striving, that it should end in such bitter loss? How had they made such a failure of marriage, marriage that could have been so beautiful? Why was it that that last moment with Norton had been the first to show it to her? In the utter solitude she thought and thought, with strained brow, with hands tightly clasped, she searched her soul as if it were the judgment day. Death held up the lamp by which she saw her husband at last clearly. All that he was, all that he might have been, if she had not used her higher thought to build up a barrier between them. The sense of his maimed life, the loss of all the joy and trust there might have been pierced her to the heart. His nature, lower than hers, 
had yet held in it the capacity to be more than hers, had seen more clearly, and had been more generous. Could it be that, after all, she who had loved so much had not loved enough? Oh, what was it that was expected to love, to desire utterly the good of the best beloved, the development along lines where one cannot follow, on which one has no claim, which touch no answering chord of itself. No one poor human being can love perfectly, as perfectly as that, if one were only God. But there was God. Millie raised her head, and the moonlight fell on her face. Oh, far beyond this poor horizon's bound shone the answers to all her thought. The capability of endless growth, the mating of two souls beyond the spheres and through all ages was the message of high emprise that called her like the voice of a star. With the heart of love, with the wings of immortality came the third revelation, reaching to infinite depths and heights, revealing the ineffable space where self is lost in the divine. The secret of life and death, of loss and of reprisal, of the seen and the unseen, of thou and I, was there in the oneness of all that our mortal sense divides. Oh, the great, free, beautiful vision! In the long silence, in the blowing of the night wind, when the clouds veiled the moon, spirit to spirit, she stood with her beloved at last, as never, oh, never before upon this earth, and repeated aloud once more the words of eternal light. The Lord watched between thee and me, between thee and me, when we are parted the one from the other. End of chapter 11 Recording by E.J. Wiley, Seguin, Texas End of Little Stories of Married Life by Mary Stuart Cutting